Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a drash by Pressman Academy's head of school, Dr. Erica Rothblum. I am a bad mother, but I'm learning to be good. Jessamine Chan's book, The School for Good Mothers, is one of those haunting books that requires a reader to put it down every few pages in order to take a deep breath, unclench fists, and remind yourself it's just a book because it can feel so real. In this slightly parallel universe, children can be taken away from their parents for small infractions, inadequately baby-proofing their apartment, letting their child play outside unattended, coddling them because that's a form of emotional abuse, in addition to larger transgressions. And in order to get their child back, the parents are sent to government-run schools where they learn to be good parents. I am a bad mother, but I'm learning to be good, is the mantra the mothers repeat daily as they learn a mother can handle anything, a mother is always patient, a mother is always kind, a mother is always giving. A mother never falls apart. A mother is the buffer between her child and the cruel world. After I finished the book, I had to spend the next few days deprogramming myself to remember it wasn't real and my children were not going to be taken away from my parenting infractions. I recommended the book to friends who all told me that they felt deeply immersed in the pain of the main character Frida's struggle. One friend said, I knew it was dystopian, but it was only a degree removed from our world. I can imagine it happening, which is why it felt so real and scary. Another friend confessed that she had spent a session with her therapist discussing the book. There are a lot of themes to dissect, but the one I want to think about today, which is so real during this season, is what it means to repair a mistake and what it means to be on the receiving end of someone else's repentance. During this season, we read and see many different models for tshuva. We read about the scapegoat, the idea that the priest confesses all the sins of the people, the goat runs away, and now we are free. We have the confessional prayer in which we follow a prescribed set of sins and we confess while beating our chest. And there are those perfunctory apologies that we often see this time of year on social media. For those I hurt, I'm sorry, forgive me. But all of these seem very superficial. And our tradition is rarely superficial. Rabbi David Wolfblink, a 20th century Jewish renewal rabbi and a follower of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, offered that tshuva is ultimately meant to return us to a clear essence of who we are, to shed those qualities we have acquired that distort our essential being. He taught that the point of tshuva is to examine our behaviors, our roles, our patterns, to determine what we want to let go of, and what we want to strengthen. It means noticing our successes and where we miss the mark. Dr. Lewis Newman, a Jewish ethicist, adds that tshuva is about choosing truth over deception. He shares, I think repentance really is about coming to terms with who we really are. It's true both in terms of claiming our own mistakes, not running from them, not hiding from them, but actually claiming them, knowing that they're true and owning them and also owning the fact that deep down, our core essence is, is ultimately good. Doing tshuva is about returning to the purity and the wholeness that's kind of your original nature that you've strayed from. It's about being true to who we ultimately are. 
So in other words, when we do tshuva right, we rebalance our lives and we get to live as our truest selves. And so in this interpretation, we're not doing tshuva for the sake of God or even for the sake of others. We're doing it so that we can shed the fat around our own souls, get down to the ikar, the essence of ourselves, and live our most fulfilling lives. But it seems to me that in order to do tshuva right, we need to think about how we truly let go of the things of which we are not proud. What does it mean to truly repair a mistake so that we can shed the things we don't want to take forward with us? And let's be honest, when we do something wrong, it doesn't feel good. Our natural instinct might be to deny it, to get defensive, to make it small. If we apologize, we might do a version of either, I'm really sorry about hurting your feelings. We good? In this case, we're basically asking the person, can we just move on? Or we might offer, I'm really sorry I was mean, but I wouldn't have to be mean if you didn't annoy me. In either of these cases, we're offering an apology or a version of an apology, but we're not actually repairing the breakage, nor are we truly shedding the things we have done wrong. Instead, for true tshuva, what we should be doing in these moments is repair. As Dr. Becky Kennedy, a clinical psychologist and the founder of Good Inside, shares, repair is the act of going back to the moment of disconnection, taking responsibility for your behavior and acknowledging the impact it had on another. She continues, and I want to differentiate a repair from an apology because when an apology often looks to shut a conversation down, a good repair opens one up. In her TED Talk, Dr. Becky, as she is known, offers a few steps for repair. The first is to repair with yourself, knowing that you cannot offer compassion or groundedness or understanding to someone else before you offer it to yourself. Self-repair means acknowledging that who you are is separate from what you did. It means stopping the cycle of feeling defensive, feeling shame. Only once you're grounded, once you've offered yourself that compassion, can you repair with another person. And repair has three elements. Name what happened, take responsibility, and state what you would do differently next time. It could come together like this. I keep thinking about what I said to you last night. I'm sorry I yelled. I'm sure that felt upsetting because you were trying to do the right thing. I'm working on staying calm even when I'm frustrated. Repair means that we acknowledge what we have done wrong and we name what we might do differently next time. It means connecting with the other person while taking responsibility for your own behavior. It's also possible that even when we offer this repair, there will be really big hurt. Even when we take responsibility for our actions, people are allowed to feel hurt, and sometimes we can't fix that, despite the really beautiful lyrics in Fix You by Coldplay. (laughs) Ultimately, we're offering repair in an effort to heal, not to fix. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, recently shared in an interview, that word healing is so important. It's different from fixing. Healing is about making whole. And to be a healer, you have to be able to listen, to learn, and to love. And so we can learn when we offer repair, our intention must be to heal, to listen, to reconnect the relationship. If we offer repair with the intention of fixing, we might find ourselves feeling disappointed. So we can offer repair, and we can acknowledge the pain we've caused when engaging in tshuva, but what about accepting someone else's repair and apology? In the book, Frida Makes a Mistake. She calls it her very bad day, and there's no debate that she made a mistake. But then she tries to fix her mistake. 
She agrees to be monitored by the state 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She apologizes. She weeps. She tries to communicate it will never happen again. She gives up a year of her life to go to the School for Good Mothers, and she's fighting an uphill battle, one that feels Sisyphean at times to receive forgiveness. There are things that might happen, either to us or around us, that are really hard to accept and forgive. And while we're all entitled to our feelings about those things, I also think we have a responsibility to discern the big upsets from the ones that we might be able to forgive. We're taught that when we die, we'll be asked six questions by God. The fifth question asks, in part, whether we understood one matter from another. One interpretation of this question is whether we understood a big thing from a small thing. In Frida's world, there's no discernment. She's treated the same as the mother who's at the school for coddling, and they're both in the same program as the mother who locked her children in a cellar without food. And the state is spending the same amount of resources to have all of these mothers repent. We spend a lot of time in rages about things that, if we were to take a step back, might dissipate with examination of understanding one matter from another. Or said another way, Rabbi Ari Lucas used to teach, there are three categories of things about which to get angry. There are the things that I really don't care about. There are the things I care about, but if they go differently than I want them to go, I can live with it, even if not easily. And there are the things I care so deeply about, I'm willing to lose a relationship, a home, a job. And hopefully that last category is the smallest, with the fewest amount of topics within it. And yet often, we get angry, really angry, about things that are actually in that, those first two categories. We write people off as bad people or someone I don't want in my life because of their actions. In the book, the state spends a lot of resources punishing Frida, and they spend the same amount of resources for asking for her repentance as they do in asking for all the other mothers who have different degrees of transgression. I wonder how Frida's story might have changed if the level of anger matched the crime. Part of our work is to recognize how important the issue is to us, to find ways to forgive those transgressions that are ultimately in those first two categories, and to see the actions of another as an error in judgment, not the totality of who they are. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov taught that we should always look for the good in others, and that in fact, even in a person who's virtually completely sinful, we should find the very smallest bit of goodness in them and judge them for their merits. When you do that, he teaches, even for the person who's most sinful, when you see their goodness, you help them repent. I worry that too often we allow a person's mistake to define their whole existence forever. In Elena Aguilar's book, Onward, Cultivating Emotional Resilience in Educators, Aguilar examines the power of storytelling and perspective. And while she writes this for teachers and educators, it feels relevant for everybody. She gives an example of a teacher who says hello to their principal in the morning and doesn't get a response. In one scenario, the person thinks, wow, my principal really hates me. In another scenario, the person thinks the principal must have a lot on her mind and didn't hear me. Aguilar writes, what you think is how you feel. Our interpretations can cause, exacerbate, or intensify emotional distress, or they can boost our optimism, help us connect with others, and enable us to care for ourselves and to engage in the many habits that boost resilience. It's your interpretation that produces an emotion. Improve your interpretations and you may feel better. 
This feels so incredibly relevant when we think about the act of tshuva and considering what we will take and what we will shed as we head into this new year. What are the narratives you carry that perhaps are not exactly as you see them? Where can you offer a generous interpretation to the other person, not even for their sake, but for your own, so you can put down the heavy load you are carrying? One of the reasons the book is so captivating is the frustration a reader feels as we experience Frida trying to repair, offering acknowledgement of her wrongdoing, trying to be better, but the states holding on to their narrative, seeing her transgression as the worst thing to have ever happened. And the book offers the cautionary tale that when we don't do tshuva right, either as the person trying to repair or the person accepting the repair, we offer few options. When it's not done right is when we activate the part of people's brains that see the only options as fight or flight, to abandon meaningful relationships, to remove themselves from families, to rage in unhealthy ways. And while I won't spoil the book's ending, we see in multiple characters and multiple storylines how fight or flight feel like the only real possibilities in desperate situations. And finally, I want to offer that sometimes engaging in repair as either the person who needs to repair or the person receiving the repair, it will not always feel satisfying if our goal is to actually impact change. I had two experiences recently that highlighted this challenge. In the first situation, one of my kids engaged in a behavior that they had been repeatedly warned against doing, and it caused them to get really hurt. As they were crying, the voice in my head loudly screamed, ask how they are, ask how they are. And the voice that came out of my mouth said, how many times have I told you not to do that? (laughs) As you might expect, the result was crying, a closing off of the relationship. I will bet that I did not change the future behavior of this child. And I'm guessing that in that moment, my response elicited shame and self-blame from my child. In the second situation, there was a parent in the school who was having a rough day. They yelled, they said unkind things, they made many people feel really bad. And what I wanted to do was yell, you can't behave this way, shape up or ship out. But I recently heard, and I'm trying to live by the phrase, it is more important to be effective than to be right. So instead I called the parent and said, I heard it was a hard day, tell me what happened. The parent shared feelings of shame and guilt and feeling unseen. And while it didn't excuse the behavior, I could understand where it came from and we could address the cause. And once the parent was calm and the problem was solved, I was able to return to them and say, I know this felt really bad for you. I want to share how it felt for me. And at that moment, the parent could hear the feedback, could offer an apology that repaired the relationship, and I believe will impact future choices. Because ultimately, repair and tshuva are about putting relationships at the center. It's about our relationship with ourselves, offering compassion and kindness to others. It's seeing repair as a way to create a healthier dynamic in our world. We aren't trying to escape consequence. Of course, there are consequences when we do something wrong. But we're saying that our relationships and connection with others are more important than our behaviors. In the School for Good Mothers, the behavior is ultimately the thing the the state cares about, not the person, not the intentions, not the repair. And I think the reason the book continues to haunt me five months after I closed it for the final time is the idea that Frida could never make right the things that she did wrong. Her mistake was irreparable and dominated her life story. 
Perhaps the lesson here is that the line between our fraught world and an actual dystopian one is the ability to make things right when one errs. We don't need to live in bondage to even our most grievous mistakes. The two worlds were so hauntingly similar, and yet we do have the ability to repair and to accept others' repair so that we can shed what we want to leave behind, we can strengthen that which we want to take with us, and we can move forward in a way that lets us live as an ever-evolving, hopefully better version of ourselves. May it be so for all of us in the year to come. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.